Hi, it's Peter Steinfeld, host of the Employee Safety Podcast. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the disastrous events of September 11th, 2001, and we want to honor that anniversary by doing things a little bit differently. Instead of the traditional interview I typically conduct with our guest, we invited 9-11 World Trade Center survivor Joe Dittmar to tell his incredible story in his own words. Joe is a 40-year veteran of the insurance industry and was attending a business meeting on the 105th floor of Tower 2 on that fateful day. He's also a founding member of the Naperville 9-11 Memorial Commission and an advocate for the Always Remember Initiative. Over the past 20 years, Joe has continued to share his experience to give informational, historical, and inspirational insights into one of the most incredible events in U.S. and world history. As you listen to his story, I think you'll find that Joe not only offers lessons learned about situational awareness and crisis management, but he also provides context about why communication is so critical during emergencies. As safety leaders yourselves, I know you'll find value in Joe's firsthand knowledge about what it's like to be on the front lines of an unparalleled crisis and what it feels like to navigate a chaotic, confusing situation with little or no information. Thank you all for listening as we pay homage to the lives lost and the heroic efforts of those involved in the tragic events of September 11th, 2001. We will continue our regular programming next week. Stay safe out there. Joe, thanks so much for being here and sharing your story with our audience today. I really appreciate it. If you would, please tell us about that day, what you experienced, what you observed in your own words. I've been in the insurance industry for 43 years and Twin Towers, the World Trade Centers, were like a mecca for the insurance industry. Virtually every organization, insurance organization in the country, maybe in the world, had offices there. And it wasn't unusual for somebody in a position like mine, a senior position, to be invited to attend a meeting there. I worked for CNA Insurance Company out of Chicago at the time, and I lived in Chicago at the time. I was invited in August of 2001 to attend this meeting in September. And the meeting was an important one. There were 54 people invited to the meeting. And most of us all got there in various amounts of on time. Our meeting was unlike any or was just like, pardon me, any other insurance meeting, never started on time. The meeting was supposed to commence at 8.30, and 8.30 kind of came and went. At about 8.46, we're in this enclosed conference room on the 105th floor of South Tower World Trade Center. And so being in an enclosed conference room, you're in a building with four walls, no windows, and 8.30 comes and goes, like I said, 8.46 comes along. All of a sudden, we notice this flicker of the lights, just a flicker of the lights. Almost immediately, we, we didn't really think anything of it, okay? We couldn't see anything. We couldn't hear anything. We didn't feel anything, just this flicker of lights. Almost immediately, a gentleman by the name of Rick Blood from Aon Corporation, the company that we were visiting, came bounding into the room, said there had been an explosion in the North Tower and that we needed to evacuate. And here we were, 54 intelligent human beings. We all did the same thing to poor Rick. We waved our hands up in the air. We said, ah, we've all come far and wide. You know, hey, let us have our meeting. We'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, we're good. And he just looked at us with a little bit of a forlorn look and he said, Hey, you know, I'm one of those volunteer fire marshals for my company. 
That's why I'm wearing this funky vest, okay? I'm responsible for getting everybody off the floor to 105, 104, 103. And I want to get that done because I want to get out of here. And I know he convinced everybody to do exactly what he was trained to do because I was the last guy out of that room. He escorted us all to the nearest fire stairwell. And that's where he proceeded to tell us that we were now going to walk down 105 flights of steps. Yeah, what a bunch of happy campers, right? <laughs> Everybody did the same thing. They all attempted to go grab their cell phones. This was back in the day and age when you were the cool guy if you had a holster on your belt, okay? And you can pull out your flip phone, right? We all did that. We all wanted to, to, to basically call somebody to moan and groan about the fact that we couldn't have our meeting. And something real interesting happened on the way to that form of communications that day. They didn't work. The main cell tower for all of Southern Manhattan was on top of the North Tower. So cell service was gone. And if you were a real smart guy and you thought, okay, let me get on a landline, that wasn't a terrible idea. But everybody in New York City are now on those landlines trying to call out to their mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, whomever, to let them know they're okay, find out where they are. And even more incredibly, and it's not a stretch, everybody in the world that knows somebody in New York are now calling in on those same landlines to try to get to their mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, whatever. Landlines were overmatched. They couldn't handle the communication traffic. Cell service, gone. If you ever serve in the military, one of the first things you learn is that the first thing you do when you attack the enemy is cut the lines of communication. And whether that was a witting act that day or an unwitting act that day, that is exactly what happened. Communications didn't exist. So you've got this group of 54 type A's on the 105th floor, can't communicate with anybody. And we're pretty upset, pretty mad about the fact that we can't have our meeting, we can't communicate with anybody. And I'm sure that anybody listening to this is going to say, well, my goodness, didn't you understand what was going on? And that is exactly the point. We had no clue. There was no communication to us in any way, shape, or form of what was going on in the North Tower, what exactly was going on in the South Tower. So we reacted like normal business people and said, well, heck, we can't have our meeting. We're just going to be upset about it, all right? That communication is so key, and the lack of that communication is so key. We all did the right thing by starting down those steps. In a high-rise building, if there's ever a, an emergency, particularly a fire emergency, but any type of emergency, and you're escorted into a fire escape or fire stairwell, the rule is go in and don't get out, okay? Only at the lobby, get out at the lobby. Signs in those stairwells exist. Insurance guys like me are responsible for that. That's fire safety, life safety. These are things that we tell people. These are things that me as a, as a young insurance person was trained to say, understand, and do. Get in, don't get out. At the 90th floor, the fire stairwell door was propped open. I'm in that insurance business, and I know better. Now, if you've ever had a 12 to 18-year-old kid and you tell them not to do something, you know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to do it. That's no different for a 45-year-old insurance guy. I followed everybody out of that fire stairwell and onto the 90th floor. 
I didn't know whether I needed to get to another stairwell. I didn't understand the makeup of the building. What I can tell you is that's the worst 30, 40 seconds of my life, I think. Looking out the windows to the north, seeing the huge black holes through the sides of the North Tower, flames redder than any red I'd ever seen before, looking up the side of the building and uh, smoke, black and gray billows of smoke just pouring out of those holes. It was a beautiful September day that day in, in New York City. It was crystal clear. And I remember being able to see through that smoke, through that fire, and into those huge black holes and seeing pieces of the fuselage of a large plane. And I kept thinking to myself, my God, how did the pilot not see the building? How did he, how did he miss? He didn't miss. He didn't miss. So you see all this furniture, paper, people being pulled out of that building against their will, a gruesome, awesome sight. And I was so afraid. I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to go home. That pit of your stomach, I want my mommy feeling. It just takes over. It's so strong. And when I turned to leave that floor, I almost knocked over one of the guys that was in the meeting with me, a guy by the name of Lud Picaro from the Zurich Insurance Company. And Lud was a huge human being, so I couldn't really knock him over. Uh, but he put his big giant hands on my shoulders. He said, where are you going to go? I said, I'm getting the heck out of here. What are you going to do? And he said, yeah, same thing. I think that's a good idea, except before I go, I'm going to go. And he pointed to the closest restroom. And that simple two and a half minute, three minute delay and his progress out of the building that day cost Lud his life. Simple decision to do something normal, just like it was a simple decision for thousands and thousands of people just to show up for work cost him his life, cost them their lives that day, just showing up to go to work. It's a lesson that, that can't be stressed enough. You don't know what you don't know. And you can't take anything for granted ever. And you can't forget all the things that you've been taught in an emergency circumstance to do. You need to make sure that you do it. People ask me all the time, ultimately you got out, Joe, how did that happen? And I said, good decisions, good luck, divine intervention. And good decisions only come from good information. And good information only comes from knowledge. And you have to have those things all the time in order to make the best decisions you can make. Doesn't hurt to be lucky. Doesn't hurt to pray. But you better know what you're doing. And that day was no different. Something was driving me. I got to the top of the fire stairwell after, you know, encountering Lud. And they're making an announcement over the PA system. The event has been contained to the North Tower, the South Tower is considered safe. We ask that if you work in the South Tower, that you return to your workstation. If you are a visitor, we suggest that you stay where you are until further notice. And if you feel that you need to leave, please proceed with caution. Everybody gulps when I talk about that and say, my God, how could they make that announcement? But there's a woman or man in charge of building security at Two World Trade Center that day, and they're down in the lobby with a cop on one side, a firefighter on the other side, looking back at this person and saying, you've got maybe 25,000 people in this building, 
and it's raining concrete and steel and bodies outside. You can't let them out. So the announcement was accurate. Our building, the elevators were going up and down. The ventilation system was working. Electricity was still good. Nobody would have ever thought that within 18 minutes, the same exact thing would have happened to our building. Now, fortunately for me, that insurance training took on. I didn't know how cautious I was going to be about escaping, but I was getting out. And you're going down switchback steps, which go back and forth and back and forth. So you can't run and you're making a pace as best as you can. When we got down to the 78th floor, the 78th floor and the 44th floor, both of the towers were known as sky lobbies. That's exactly what they were, second and third lobbies in the building, because the elevators couldn't go straight up 110 stories. They couldn't be engineered that way. So you had these natural breaks at 44 and 78. When we get down to the 78th floor, the woman that had invited me to this meeting is screaming at me to come to the elevators with her. And finally, my pea brain... <laughs> thought about that stuff that had been drilled into me as a kid underwriter in the insurance business. Buildings, data duress, fire, emergency, don't get in an elevator. And I looked at Mary, the woman that I was talking about, I waved and politely didn't say a word to her, turned around and went back to the stairwell, arguably the best decision I've made in what is still my life. Because I was somewhere between the 72nd, the 73rd floor, when the second plane plowed through our building. And that plane went through our building on an angle between floors 77 and 83. We were just a few flights of steps below the strike zone. Never felt anything like that in my life and never want to ever feel anything like that again. This concrete bunker that you're inside, this fire stairwell that you're inside starts to shake violently at angles it shouldn't be shaking. The concrete spidering out, the handrails breaking away from the wall, the steps like waves in the ocean undulating underneath your feet. And you feel this heat ball blowing by and you smell this jet fuel and this thing just keeps rocking back and forth and back and forth and you feel like it's forever. Maybe it's minutes. And then it finally settles in you would think there would be this massive pandemonium. Interestingly enough, that was all received with a stunned silence of all of us who were in that stairwell. We all played the conjecture game. We saw the building in a state of duress on the other side. We saw that it was a plane that had gone through. We thought that the fuel cell from the plane exploded. That's why we smelt the jet fuel. That's why we felt this violent shake. That's why we felt this heat ball blowing by us. We didn't know. At that moment, we all went for the cell phones again, too. And actually, at that moment, it was kind of good that that couldn't work. What we didn't know couldn't hurt us at that point. Ignorance truly was bliss at that point. So we were able to proceed and get down. I mean, lots of observations on the way down, but nothing that would be more dramatic than what you would think, okay? Stuff thrown to the side, all kinds of, you know, bags and overcoats and briefcases, women's shoes, tons of women's shoes, because if you're walking down 70 flights of steps, you're not going to be in three or four inch heels, okay? A lot of barefooted ladies that day. I mean, there was just stuff, to, and but if it was in your way, 
you were able to push it aside. Egress was fine, two, three, four people wide, and everybody was heading in the same direction until the 35th floor. And that's the chance we had for the first time to encounter the police, the firefighters, and the paramedics from New York City and the Port Authority. Just the looks in their eyes told the story. Just the looks in their eyes. No words. They knew. They knew. They knew that they were going up those steps to fight a fire that they couldn't beat. They knew they were going up those steps to try to save lives that they couldn't save. And they knew that they were going up and they knew that they were never, ever coming back. They knew. How can you be that brave? How can you be that strong? Things slowed down a little bit as a result of this. These guys are pulling hoses and carrying equipment. And I mean, unbelievable. And we're heading down, going in the opposite direction. You almost feel like you're a coward to a degree because you see this and you understand this and you know this, but you know that the survival instinct is one that's strong. We're about at the 18th floor and we hear somebody singing through a megaphone at the top of their lungs in a voice that only a mother could love on payday. I mean, this guy's singing in his horrible, horrible voice. And here it was that it was a security guy who worked in the North Tower, a guy by the name of Rick Rascorla. And he worked for Morgan Stanley. He had come over to the South Tower after he had successfully evacuated all his people from Morgan Stanley in the North Tower. He could have went home. He came to the South Tower to help. He's at the 15th floor singing and making jokes and yelling out loud through this megaphone and trying to ease people's worries so that they would get out of the building. And I wonder how many people that man saved that day overall while giving up his own life. He never got out. He gave up his own life. This guy had survived Vietnam and he never got out. I mean, he drilled his people. The Morgan Stanley people really didn't love Rick for the safety drills that they did with him, but his safety drills saved each and every one of them. True hero. True hero. He was meant to be there. When we got down to the ground level of the building, we couldn't get out at the street level because it, you look out the windows and you see the crumbled concrete, the twisted steel, the red blotches on the ground, and you knew what these giant red blotches on the ground were. It was a ticker tape of concrete, steel, and bodies. You couldn't go out. They wouldn't let us out. They're taking us all down into the concourse level, the underground. And that's the chance we had for the first time to see people in real need, people with gaping wounds, missing limbs, true blood and gut stuff. And human nature is strong and it takes over and you want to reach out, you want to try to help. And you couldn't that day. And the reason that you couldn't was there were so many cops and firefighters and paramedics there to help these people. I've never seen in one place at one time such an outpouring of caring and concern and of love. And that's what this was this day. Love for each other.
those of us that were okay, we're on our own. The herd mentality takes over. You hope somebody at the front of your herd knows how to get through this maze of corridors, every fast food restaurant, every store known to mankind, like a gigantic mall underground with signs that mean nothing to you if you're not from New York. And we're getting ready to go up the this at the northeastern end of the complex, a set of escalators no longer escalating. I bump into a friend of mine, a guy who I still do business with to this day, David Duffy. And David calls me, calls my name out and says, hey, we're you know, what, what's going on? And I said, David, I'm just trying to get out of here. What are you doing here? And I dawned on me, oh, wait a minute, you work in this building. I said, well, wait a minute, David, you're behind me on these steps uh, and you're just catching up. You work on like 53, 54. He said, yeah, I'm on 54. I said, I was on 105. Why are you still in this building? And this guy who is brilliant at what he does looks at me straight in the eye and he said, well, I was about 25 flights of steps down when I realized the office may not be open tomorrow. So I went back up those 25 flights of steps because I had to get the Yankees tickets. I'm in charge of the Yankees tickets. One of the smartest human beings I know went 25 flights of steps back up to get the Yankees ticket. And so it does show that even the brightest, even the greatest of minds don't always think fully through what you should be doing in an emergency situation. We're fortunate enough to be able to still kid him about that to this day, thank God. And it was important that him and I met because as we got out of the building and they're bobcat bulldozing everything, I mean everything away from the building, the, the uniforms there are screaming at us, run, 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 don't stop. And you get across the street in front of St. Paul's Chapel and you stop. And you turn around and you look at this unbelievable scene. Like I said, a ticker tape of concrete and steel and bodies. I had no clue what I was going to do. David wasn't 100% sure. He said, what, what's your plan? I said, my plan was to actually get back on a train to go to Philadelphia where I had started my day, go to the Philadelphia airport, my rental car, and fly back to Chicago where I lived at that time. I don't think that's going to happen. And He said, I don't think that's going to happen either. Why don't you come with me to my home? I said, okay, where do you live? 111th Street, Upper West Side. I said, we're going to walk. That's a long way. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, well, what do you got something better to do? And I said, no, you're right. You're right. We should do that. But we were only eight blocks away when we came across a commercial laundry with its doors thrown wide open and a radio blaring out that this was an on-purpose terrorist attack. Our jaws dropped to the ground. This doesn't happen here. This doesn't happen here. But it was the next couple of sounds that were the sounds that all of us that were there that day remember to this day, first thing I hear in the morning, last thing at night, the unmistakable sound of the twisting steel, the crumbling concrete, the building that we had been in just eight minutes prior coming to the ground. We were fortunate enough to, to have somebody that David knew live in this Tribeca section of the city where we were. We hold up in there. And that was the first time we started to get some true communications about what was going on that day and truly understand the severity of the event. We didn't know until then. 
We just didn't know. Now that we understood, all of us had the same thing. We wanted to try to communicate with those we love. We wanted to make sure people understood where we were, and we wanted to somehow be able to go home. Five, six hours into the event, the mayor of New York got on TV. He had the guts to make the decision to reopen the subways at that point because he understood that people just wanted to go home. No truer words were spoken when he said that. He kept saying, I know you all want to get home. I mean, people were walking over the George Washington Bridge to get to Jersey, walking out the Long Island Railroad and the Long Island Expressway to get home. They just wanted to get home, and so did we. When he opened up the subways, David and I went to the closest subway. We couldn't even get down the steps. It was so crowded with people wanting to get on a subway. And when we finally did, our train went two stops up, Penn Station, Amtrak. Finally, my brains thought about this, and David's must have thought about it at the same time because we had that type of moment, no talking. Both got off the subway together. Joe wants to get back to Philadelphia, even if it's just back to Philly. Joe wants to get out of here. He knew that. I knew that. I was very fortunate to get on the train and to be able to get down to Philadelphia that day. And when I got down to Philly, I had a rental car that I was supposed to return at the Philadelphia International Airport. I made the decision not to try to drive. And that state of mind and that state of emotion was probably not a good idea. So I would go up and stay with my mom and dad in the house that I grew up in as a kid in Northeast Philadelphia. And uh, when I got to the house, my mom, my mom was waiting for me, comes off the steps, gives me this big giant hug, pats my head, sobs in my ear, my baby, my baby. Didn't have the heart to remind her that I was the oldest one. Uh, but she did for me at that point in time, the same thing she continues to do for me to this day. She helped me and she loved me. Um, I got up the next morning after a very, very short amount of sleep in my parents' house. I called the office to let them know that I wouldn't be in. And it was a good thing because they thought I was dead. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I needed to call anybody to let them know that I was still alive. And yet, the people hosting our meeting, my company, all the people who were there, all their companies were chasing information in order to understand who was good, who was bad. This was uncharted territory. Nobody really knew how to react, what to say, what to do. And um, we were all learning on our feet. That day, when the, the gentleman from Aon called me to find out whether I was okay and I was able to get back, he said, why didn't you call me? And I said, you were not the first guy on my mind. And he understood that. He definitely understood that. But I can see how the reactions can be the way that they can be. But the most important phone call I made that second day, 12th, was when I was about 10, 15 minutes away from my home. I'd been driving. I'd been calling anybody that would listen to me, reaching out and touching people. I mean, you know, that was what we wanted to do. And this was before national plans and rollover minutes. And I didn't care if I went over my minutes or whatever. I was just happy to talk. I called my wife about 15 minutes out. I said to her, hey, I'm almost home. I'm almost there. She hesitated a little bit. She said, oh, okay. I said, Something going on. And she said, well, they decided to have a mass at Our Lady of Mercy. And I stopped her right in the middle of her sentence. And I said, you know what? 
yeah, yeah, it's a good day to go to church. I'll be there. I'll meet you there. And I pulled down the street to go pull into the parking lot at church. You would have thought it was Christmas. No room at the end, okay? And uh, finally found a parking spot. I don't know if I was more afraid the day before or the minute I opened up the back doors to that church to see these hundreds of pairs of eyes all staring back at me, knowing where I had been. I looked over to the right to the pew where we always sit, Roman Catholics always sit in the same pew, right? And um, there's my wife, a couple of my kids, some of my friends. My wife would never be doing what I'm doing with you today. She doesn't like to talk about what she considers to be the worst day of her life. She's very non-demonstrative. So it was even doubly unusual to see that non-demonstrative woman jump over the back of the pew run to the back of the church, give me the greatest hug and a kiss a man could ever want. And I knew at that moment that I was home. I was home. Uh, Joe, that's just an absolutely unbelievable and incredible story. And I'm honored that you shared it with us today. As you look back in hindsight, 20 years later, what do you wish you had known in the moment? Would having more information or better communication that day have changed things? I think Two things would have been better if everybody had had the privilege that I had. I had the privilege of understanding, because of my industry and because of my what I do for a living, I had the understanding of fire safety and the rules of fire safety and the rules of getting out of a building and not getting out of a fire stairwell, even though I did, okay? But I understood that general concept. More and more people need to understand. You need to take this stuff seriously. It's not a joke. It's not a waste of your time because you don't need it until you need it. Never would I have been able to get out had I not had that understanding. And unfortunately, I feel that a lot of companies don't do enough of this. We also need as a group of industries all over to be much more aware of severity events, to plan for severity events. Fires are bad enough. But we do live in a day and age where people come into schools with guns and people do things that are just absolutely unbelievable. We live in a society now where we're starting to see because of lack of maintenance that buildings can indeed collapse at a moment's notice without anybody knowing it. So we need to really make sure that we engineer and plan for worst case scenarios, not just physically engineer, but also from a human perspective engineer, understand what's going to happen and what you need to do at a time when there is a crisis. Rick Riscorla drilled and drilled these people over and over to the point of almost hatred. Every one of their lives was saved because of that, because they understood. So that's what I wish we had more of that day. We, some of us got the good decision gene. Some of us didn't get the good decision gene. And we're very, very fortunate that those of us that did were able to get out. Yeah, you've got to take training seriously and don't be embarrassed. Just get out the door. And, you know, there is a, it's unfortunate because there is a level of embarrassment, a stigma of embarrassment sometimes where, like I said, waste of time. I'm too busy. You're not too busy for this. You're not too busy for this because when you need it, you're going to be glad you have it. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here today. And I truly appreciate it. I know our listeners will as well. So thank you so much. We are quite welcome. I, I just would like to make sure that all the folks that are listening to your podcast understand that 
you know, people like me do this not because we want fame or fortune. We do this because as persons who have been part of an event like this, it's our obligation to tell the story, to give a voice to 3,000 people who no longer have a voice, and to make sure everybody, including them, realize that while their spirits may have been dashed, they weren't dashed in vain. So we all thank you, and we all thank you for the opportunity to be able to tell our stories. You do us a favor, and we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. Well, thank you, Joe, and thanks to all of our listeners out there for joining us on this special episode. Until next time.